Good morning. Here we are back in the book of Acts, volume two to Luke's great and precious gospel. So today we're going to look quite a bit. Uh, the section isn't very long, but there's a lot of different content in there. So be patient with me. Uh, I just want to start by pointing out sort of um, how interesting it is how Jesus arranged uh, the post-resurrection period with the apostles. It lasted for 40 days after this super emotional low and emotional high with the resurrection and then these different experiences they're having with him, how he uh, arranges things up until the coming of the big event in Acts chapter 2. We talked last time about how the resurrection of Jesus covered 40 days with them, and that included the, the 11 apostles and uh, other believers as well, frequently. And we mentioned that both Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24 and then the book of Acts, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, they tell the story of Jesus' ascension, his going back into heaven, and also his giving them final orders final orders to the men before he leaves. So Luke records it this way, Luke 24, 44. Jesus is speaking. He says, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, and you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's a lot there. Acts chapter 1 records similar um, thoughts and sayings from Jesus. Acts chapter 1 verse 4, it says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Very similar language there to Luke. And then in verse 8, um, we have the orders. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So these are the men to take the gospel to the world, to the remotest parts of the earth, and that includes all peoples, Jew and Gentile. So first, they are to wait. So he does not send them out today, the day of the ascension. They have a week or so to kind of take in everything that happened and to prepare their hearts for what's coming, for the task at hand. So we're not rushing in to the coming of the Holy Spirit. They actually have some time to really reflect on what all that's happened and to prepare themselves for that. They won't be facing the world and the great task at hand without divine power. They, they have to wait for it, though. That's the idea. So how are they going to use their time during this approximately one week? That's the question uh, we want to look at today, and we will draw an application from their example rather than from anything directly taught here. There's no teaching for us here, but um, this is a one-of-a-kind event, this coming of the Holy Spirit. So let's pick up the story from last week. We're going to pick it up at verse 12, and this is after Jesus has ascended and the angel has given the apostles his message. So in verse 12 it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Um, you might have been 
noticing there, verse 12, it says uh, the, a Sabbath day's journey. That's the only time this appears in the, in the Bible, but it, that was something that was very common and well understood to all Jews living in uh, the land of the Holy Land at that time. That was an easy way to measure distances for a Jew in the first century. It's not in the Bible, but it was the distance you're allowed to travel on the Sabbath. It's a rabbi rule, not a Bible rule. It's a Pharisaical addition. So it's one of many rabbinic traditions added to the Bible to make sure that nobody worked on the Sabbath. So how far is that? Well, it's, a, it, um, it's about 2,000 cubits, basically, or two-thirds of a mile. And uh, even today, you'll see Orthodox Jews uh, living within a Sabbath day's journey to their local synagogue. That's why they, lit, they actually move to places where they can walk to their synagogue. It has to be within a certain distance. So it actually decides where people purchase homes in, in a particular community. And if you go to certain enclaves in Los Angeles, that's where you'll see on the Sabbath morning, the, the Jews um, wearing all their regalia and their special clothing, uh, walking to synagogue. So comes all the way down from that time. So the apostles returned to the upper room in Jerusalem, Luke tells us, which was for the time sort of a headquarters, a meeting place. We don't know where that was for sure. It was a large room, so it must have been a, a rich person's home or some, some people actually think it was a part of the temple complex. I don't think that's probable. Um, the home of John Mark's mother is more likely the place. That's where the apostles were found meeting and the church people were found meeting when Peter was in prison in Acts chapter four. So that might be it right there. Whatever it was, the apostles returned there. And Luke is careful to mention the apostles by name in verse 13. So we understand exactly who they are. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now this Judas is sometimes called Judas not Iscariot because he's not that Judas. There's a, Judas was a very common name. Uh, so there's 11 men, all chosen personally by Jesus, and that's not all. Verse 14 says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, plural. So these are the women who were with Jesus' mother at the cross and the tomb and Mary's there. And now we see that Jesus' brothers are there as well. That's kind of exciting because they were not believers during his ministry on the earth. But we know Jesus appeared specifically to his brother James. That's mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So either James won everybody else over or Jesus appeared to the other ones as well. We don't know, but um, all the family now are among the disciples apparently. And that's not all. We find out in verse 15, there were about, there were about 120 people there. So that's a big second story room in the first century. So it's bigger than the room I'm in right now. So the question is, what were they all doing while they were waiting? They, I mean, they couldn't go on a day trip and float on the Dead Sea or anything because Jesus said to stay in the city, so they couldn't do that. Did the guys have a Call of Duty uh, gaming marathon while the ladies made snacks and watched uh, Christmas movies on the Hallmark Channel or anything? No, that's not what they were doing. Did they have a chess tournament, a hoedown? Uh, did, how did they pass their time? Well, it was right there in verse 14. Did you notice it? These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So the thing they were doing was praying. 
Now, modern Western people have a hard time of think, thinking about praying basically for a week. I mean, just continually praying. Um, extended periods of prayer for many hours, sometimes going for a day or several days, in this case, over a number of days. But actually, around the world, Christians do do this. Um, it's easier in times of great crisis and great expectation, great endeavors that are about to come. That's what we see here. But it's not unusual for Christians to come together for special seasons of prayer where they do pray all night, all day, um, several days over a period of time. Um, that's not uncommon. And here, something really wonderful is coming and they want to be fully immersed in God's will, fully set apart uh, in their hearts and ready for what God is going to do. So what did they pray about? It actually doesn't say. It's not too hard to imagine. Um, think of all the things they had seen and experienced over the previous weeks and all they had learned from Jesus himself during that time when he was teaching them after the resurrection. They have a lot to be thankful for. So I'm sure a big part of their prayer time was just praising God for all the amazing things that it, he had done among them. They were the generation that saw the most important things that have ever happened in history. What a cause of great praise. And do you think there might have been a cause for true repentance during this time? Uh, repentance for recent failures, doubts needed to be confessed perhaps, uh, unbelief, sleeping while Jesus prayed, hiding while the women went to the cross, uh, I suspect there was true repentance going on as part of all that as well. And certainly prayer for God's will to be done, for guidance for the days ahead and this great task they have to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. And many things could have been the subject of their prayers. But I expect that the new orders given by Jesus was sort of at the top of their list. Think of how Paul prayed. In him we have a really good apostolic example in fact, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 is one of my favorite little sections where he's, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. That is a great sentence. And he goes on. He says, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So here's an apostle asking for clarity, uh, for opportunity, for all of those kind of things. But first he tells them, devote yourselves to prayer. Keep alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Prayer is not a drudgery thing. It's an alert thing. You're thinking about what's God doing? What are the needs? What, are, what do I need to be praying for? What are people going through around me that I need to uphold in prayer? All of those kind of things. What tasks are before me that I need to bring before the Lord? If we don't do that, we're handicapping ourselves in our spiritual walk and we're handicapping our church and those we love because we're not praying for them with an alert mind. So alert prayer with thanksgiving is an essential part of that. So that's what Paul says. But for himself, Paul, like I said, as an apostle, he wants clarity when he preaches. He wants God to make opportunities to open doors for the word. All of that's in there. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul asks for prayer. He says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel to which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
Some people are naturally super bold. Apparently Paul wasn't one of those and uh, most people aren't. But he's asking for a boldness. I mean, he's in chains for one thing, so he knows it gets him in a lot of trouble when he speaks boldly. But uh, he wants prayer for that to happen. So even this veteran missionary is asking for boldness. Unsurprisingly, we find prayers like that in the book of Acts as well. Very soon, when we come to Acts chapter 4, we'll see the same kind of request. After Peter and John are arrested and threatened and then released, um, told to not preach the gospel of Jesus anymore, the whole church prayed. This is in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. It says, and this is the prayer. Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. So they're going to not worry about those threats and they're asking that God would take away any other concerns or worries or fears that they have and that they would be confident and bold in their preaching. It is good and right to pray for courage and boldness and for the right words. So you might be surprised what answers you'll get when you do that. We often, um, you know, we often worry that our modern culture sort of opposes us, they're against us. It's always been that way. Anywhere where the true gospel is preached, there's going to be blowback from the culture because humans are the same today as they always have been. They're, they're antagonistic to what God is actually doing. Even when the culture is very religious, it's that way when the truth is preached. And when the culture is growingly, um, like our culture is increasingly uh, irreligious or secular or crazy, um, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. The true gospel is going to bring some kind of re- rejection from many people. Not everyone, though, but many people. So we pray for courage, and um, we pray for love on our part, a chance to love these people. It does take courage to tell the truth, but you know where, where love is, courage grows because love leads us to take risks for the good of other people. So we pray for that. We pray for a heart full of love for the lost. We're we're not out to win an argument, but to show lost people that God wants them to be saved. That's what our purpose is. So we need to pray about that, about those circumstances. Effective prayer requires self-discipline. That's what they're showing here. They're meeting for extended periods of time in prayer, especially in... uh, these particular times we're talking about, but in our time as well, right? So many things are, are vying for our attention, trying to distract us, keep us away from prayers. We just have to make time for it. You have to make time for prayer. That's what they're doing. That's what we need to do. Uh, a humble spirit is essential for prayer as well. We come as weak and poor children, not as spoiled princes, like the TV preachers would have you pray. Um, we don't demand Uh, nor are we given the status of gods uh, where we pray like the heretics on TV pray. We we don't create reality with our words. God creates reality. We just appeal to him. God is God and his will is often mysterious, frankly. Uh, We don't always know what he's up to, so we come with trust. That's part of that humility is trusting God for his infinite wisdom. He does know better than we, doesn't he? He sees the big picture that we can't even begin to see. I often think of when my kids were really tiny and one and a half, two years old, and they're kind of toddling in front of you, exploring something, and you're right behind them, and your eyes are on everything they're seeing and not seeing, way beyond where they are, and they're walking along doing stuff, and you're over them, behind them, and well, that's kind of how it is with God. Like, we're, we're going the way we think we should go, and we're asking for things we think we need, and he sees the whole picture because his knowledge is infinite, so we're very tiny, 
and he's infinite and infinitely wise and we're sort of messed up sometimes so it's way better to let him handle everything just we do share with him though what we think is best but it's really up to him to decide what's going to really happen nearly always whatever happens i eventually see as a better plan not always but and i accept when i don't see it but uh I often do see it that he had a better plan than I had all along because I am so small and my vision is so limited. So sometimes uh, human evil looks like it wins, but it won't because God is holy. It won't win, not in the end. Sometimes disease and, and sickness seem to win, but I understand that tragedy and suffering make us help us to see this world as a temporary place not to be too attached to it we're not to be children of this world but we're supposed to be looking forward to what's to come what's eternal so often our prayers are concerned with what's temporary and that's okay but God is always working for the eternal good of everything so um, that's what he's doing so when when he and if he blesses us temporally that's fine but his interests are so much more important than ours for us for our eternal destiny and the destiny of other people our growth so prayer is never telling god what to do it's asking what we think would seem best and it uh, is actively then leaving matters in his good hands that's what prayer does so prayer is just as much about us constantly being in communication with our infinitely wise father than it is actually moving his hand in certain ways. We do ask for those things, but it's really the communication part that's more critical than that. So prayer is not a power to manipulate. It's not a spell or a chant or anything like that. It's an appeal to our king from the heart. And whatever he does, that's okay. And whatever he decides, it's the communication with him that was the most important thing that we have. Now there is power in prayer because of God responding to prayer according to his perfect will. James 5.16 says the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. That's very encouraging. That's because God is a person to be appealed to, not a computer input-output. It's not one of those situations. He's a person and we can't appeal to him. And he can and does exercise his power in response to us. But again, It's always according to his infinite wisdom. Okay, you know, if I know more than somebody else about a certain thing, I might be able to give them some direction or guidance about it. But if somebody knows more than me about a given thing, I kind of put myself in the position of a learner. Well, God is infinitely knowledgeable about all things. So we sort of always need to be in that position as a learner, right? We can't tell him what's right and what he needs to do. God always knows more than me about everything and it's his universe and if we are living for him and for his purposes and for his glory then we pray and we align ourselves with those things so I pray then I take responsibility for what he has called me to do and I leave the results of that to him so all of that is what's going on with the apostles and the women praying in the upper room and we see here in Acts that prayer is an integral part of serving God and doing his will. It's what he most wants to see in us, actually. Somebody said uh, not too long ago, what the church needs today is not more and better machinery, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men mighty in prayer. 
The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Prayer is our most formidable weapon, the thing which makes all else we do efficient. I think that's right. So people pray and be about eternal business. Okay, I'm going to switch topics now because the story's advancing here. So a whole new topic out of this text. The other thing we're told happened between the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit was that Judas's office should be filled. So 12 was not an arbitrary number on Jesus' part when he picked a select group of men to become apostles. And um, Peter realized that in preparation for the coming of the Spirit, Judas's office really should be filled, right? So the whole structure of God's saving program is built around this sort of foundation of 12, 12 men. Last time I mentioned uh, Matthew 19, 27 and 28, that sort of wow text for the apostles where Jesus tells them what the kingdom will mean for them when it finally comes. If you remember, it's Matthew 19, 27. He says, Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Kind of a bold question. Jesus said, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the fact is, in the kingdom, the apostles will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So while they are praying, God may have brought these previous words of his to Peter's mind, so he calls for that office to be fulfilled. We have to get a guy on that other throne. I mean, it's 12 is not arbitrary. It's a specific number for a specific office. There's that many slots that have to be filled, and Peter realizes that. So before we look at what he said, let's look a little deeper into the number 12 as it appears in Scripture. So Obviously, it's, it's most strongly connected to the 12 sons of Jacob, right? These are the, the 12 tribes of Israel. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of symbolic representations of 12. There's the articles in the tabernacle are made in sets of 12. To commemorate the crossing of the Jordan, they pile up 12 stones, representing, again, the 12 tribes. The great laver in Solomon's temple, when Solomon built his temple, they had the big giant basin to, um, to, for the priest to wash in, and it rested on 12 bulls, life-size bulls that uh, were carved out of stone and, and it sat on them. And the approach to Solomon's throne, his golden throne, that had six steps going up on each side and then it was flanked by 12 lions that were carved out. Elijah built an altar of 12 stones in 1 Kings chapter 18, the great uh, battle with the false prophets and all that. So heaven itself is represented as existing with 12 in mind. This is really interesting. So Revelation chapter 21, verse 10 says, and let me read this for you. John says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And the gates, at the gates were 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones 
And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Then a bit later in verse 21, so uh, Revelation 21, 21, it says, And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So heaven is set up in honor of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And it's no accident that the apostles' names are on foundation stones because they are the foundation of the church and the foundation of the gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. So it's not a little thing. Uh, There are 12 apostolic slots and one needs to be filled. So Peter takes charge of the situation in verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons were there together and said, verse 16, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Did you notice who Peter said the author of scripture is? It's the Holy Spirit. Just just wanted to point that out. And Peter says the betrayal of Judas was prophesied. So when Judas betrayed Jesus, that was foretold. It had to happen. It was not a surprise. But in verse 17, Peter acknowledges that Judas had been called to the apostolic office. That was a real position that he held. He he didn't weasel his way into the group. Jesus appointed him to be an apostle. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Pretty clear there. So at this point, it seems Luke steps in as sort of a narrator and offers a, a brief explanation about what happened to Judas. So verse 18 He says, and my Bible is actually in parentheses, although they don't have Greek parentheses, so um, that's an English thing. But it says, now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all all of his intestines gushed out. Sorry, had to say that. It's actually in the text. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakel Dama, which is the field of blood. So I should point out that the details here actually differ somewhat from Matthew's gospel. You might remember Matthew, near the very end of his gospel in chapter 27, gave a a much more detailed account of Judas and what happened with him. And Matthew says this in 27.3. It says, Judas felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. Real spiritual leaders there. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it's not lawful to put them in the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money they bought a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. So Matthew says Judas returned the money and hanged himself and the priests bought the field with the money. And Luke is really brief. It's a really um, short description of this, but it's, it sounds like Judas bought the field and then died by falling headlong and his intestines spilling out in it. So is that contradictory to what Matthew says? Well, it's so brief what Luke says. uh, You really just kind of want to know more about what actually happened there. He doesn't say how or why Judas fell and broke open and all of that. But ancient Bible commentators, I mean, going way back, they say both stories are accurate. That Judas did hang himself 
And when he was cut down, he was at a, a height. So when his body came crashing down, his, his guts spilled out. His intestines broke forth. So that actually makes sense to me because it's kind of hard to imagine just walking along and tripping and falling down and then your intestines go somewhere. So um, Luke's description actually is begging for more detail and Matthew actually, I think, pr- actually provides that. So it literally became a field of blood. And uh, Luke says this incident was well known in Jerusalem. It's also probable that the priests, since they wouldn't take the money back, purchased the field in Judas's name. Uh, so they wouldn't be tainted with the blood money kind of idea. So I find it interesting that both Matthew and Luke both mention the name of the field as the field of blood because that's another historical marker that could be checked at the time they were writing. They, they always go out of their way to tie these events to verifiable historical Fact. So you could go to somebody still living in Jerusalem and say, you know the thing about that field of blood and that, oh yeah, that's where that guy Judas, you know, all that, tell the whole story. So, okay, let's move along. Verse 20 picks up Peter's speech here again. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. So he's kind of weaving together two different psalms here, two quotes. One is from Psalm 69, uh, verse 25, and the other one is from Psalm 109, verse 8. Both of these psalms are what are called imprecatory psalms. If you say to someone, greetings and imprecations, you're, you're actually saying greetings to you and may curses come upon you. So an imprecation is the calling of a curse on someone, and, and there are several imprecatory psalms in the Old Testament. Psalm 69 is often called a passion psalm because David is suffering and he's calling forth these things on the people that are causing him to suffer. So it's, it's really connected with the idea of a righteous man being oppressed and suffering at the hands of a wicked man, which is, of course, exactly what happened with Jesus. So it's quoted several times in the Gospels. Psalm 69, it's it seems to keep coming up. One is where Jesus um, takes over the temple and it says, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69. Another one is at the crucifixion where it says, they gave me vinegar to drink. Uh, That is what happened at the crucifixion. So that Psalm keeps kind of being pulled on to refer to things happening in the New Testament. But in Psalm 69, what David is really praying for is the utter destruction of his enemies, of these cruel, oppressive enemies. It's quite powerful, and uh, it certainly can be applied to the Judas situation in terms of how he betrayed Jesus. Now, these are what are called, here's a technical word for you, typical prophetic psalms. Some psalms are direct. They're just, I mean, some prophecies are direct. They just say, this is going to happen, and then it gets fulfilled. Some prophecies are more what they call types. In other words, Jesus is sort of uh, recapitulating the history of Israel or things that happened to David, his first and greatest ancestor, the first man to whom was promised an eternal kingdom. Um, Things sort of seem to happen to Jesus that happened to them. Like, out of Egypt I have called my son is a typical prophetic description of what happened to Israel, but then that was used to describe Jesus going into Egypt as a small child and coming out as well. So this is another example of something like that. It happened to David, and similarly it happened to Christ as well. So the words often fit Messiah's experience. The, the second quote of Peter from Psalm 109 verse 8 is a, a section very much like Psalm 69. It's a prayer for ruin on a treacherous enemy. And that section reads like this. I'm, I'm going to read a little bit more of it, not all of it, but um, starting at verse 2, Psalm 109. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. 
They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his, and here it is, verse 8. Let his days be few and let another take his office. So Peter quotes that last line there, which is verse 8. And actually, after that, the psalm only gets more harsh toward the person being prayed against. So God does judge the wicked who seek to destroy the righteous. But that line there, Peter cites as, let another take his office. So, and that obviously is a connection because they've got a vacant office, right? So they have to fill that. So Judas was all of those things and his days were few and his office must go to another. So that's kind of where Peter's going with all that. So in verse 21, then, he lists the qualifications that should be considered for a replacement. He shows a lot of wisdom here. And what he recommends is exactly in line with what Jesus said the apostles' main task is going to be. Jesus commanded that they should go into all the world and what? Well, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but go forth also as witnesses, right? They are to be witnesses of his ministry, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, all of that. So Peter says... Um, Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, the ascension, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Those are pretty strong qualifications because certainly disciples joined Jesus along the way. So, but, but Peter's saying it's got to be somebody that's been there from the beginning since, uh, like Peter was, uh, when John the Baptist was preaching and um, pointing to Jesus. So the key is witnesses from the time Jesus was baptized, more than three years, up until and especially including the resurrection and all the 40 days of interaction after the resurrection, all of that had to be um, part of their memory, their life, their something they could give testimony to. Well, that would be very few people because obviously the movement started very small and it grew. In fact, they only find two men that actually meet all of those qualifications who've been around since John the Baptist all the way through to the ascension and have seen it all or been part of it all. Joseph is one, and a guy named Matthias is the other. Their credentials were equal. Both met the standard. But who chooses an apostle? God chooses apostles. It has to be his choice. He alone chooses apostles, not men, right? So which one does God want? The only way to determine that in Peter's mind, is to cast lots. And that's exactly what they decide to do. That was done several times in the Old Testament at key times. Now this is done with prayer, always moving ahead with prayer. So verse 23 says, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship 
from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Matthias, that's it. So Matthias will occupy one of the thrones in the kingdom of Christ and judge one of the tribes of Israel. His name will be on one of the foundation stones for the new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven. I can't wait to meet Matthias and hear his story in person. That should be quite interesting. Okay, one more thing to say about this text and just the book of Acts as a whole as we're getting ready to go forward. Um, This is related to proper biblical interpretation. Why don't we cast lots for deacons and elders in the church? Because nowhere are we told to do that. We are never instructed to cast lots. Just because somebody does something doesn't mean we do it too. Just because something happens in the Bible does not make it normative. In other words, the thing we should always do. Normal things that we should do. Learn that now as we begin this particular book. It's always important to remember when you study the Bible, but especially in the book of Acts because it's about the foundation of the church. We make a really big mistake thinking we should imitate or expect everything that happens in the book of Acts to happen in our ministries. That's just not going to be that way. That's actually how charlatans misuse the Bible to prey upon people by making claims that they can do this and that that the apostles did, which they can't really do. And we can learn from these events, but what we're supposed to do ourselves come from the teaching parts of Scripture, not the narrative parts of Scripture, not the stories that Scripture tells. So narrative is not normative. See how that kind of sings? Put that in your mind. Narrative is not normative. Teaching is normative. That doesn't sing, but that's important. Teaching is normative. That's the thing you're supposed to do. Follow. Add to that the fact that the book of Acts is a book of transition, a process that only happened one time in history. So things will happen in this book that do not happen at other times and will not happen at other times. The apostolic office itself is unique for one time, not for all time. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, echoing uh, what we know, what I just read earlier about the, uh, the 12 foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostolic office is foundational. Apostles and prophets, he says, are the foundation of the church. You know what you don't do when you're building a building? You don't lay a foundation and then build a foundation and then build a foundation and then build a... You lay a foundation and then you build a building on it. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. So if anybody claims to be apostle, an apostle today... I give you absolute permission to not even think about it and don't worry about it because they're not. You, you have my permission to pity their ig- arrogance because they're not an apostle. And for a human being today to say, well, I'm an apostle, uh, like exactly how did he get that uh, office? Well, Jesus chose me. Well, Paul said he's the last one Jesus chose. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15. So, this is what happened as they waited for the Spirit to come. They were of one mind. They were in a season of prayer. And they picked the 12th apostle. Well, they let God pick the 12th apostle. But they made sure that position was filled. Then the Spirit came with power on the day of Pentecost. And that's for next time. All right, let's pray. 
Father, we're so thankful that we get to insight into what the apostles were actually doing as they waited for the Spirit to come. May we be people of prayer and wisdom, as Peter demonstrated. May we seek your power, not rely on our own methods or machinery or thinking or plans or programs. Those things have their place, but that's not where the power comes from. We pray that you would make us courageous and bold for the truth and also full of love for those we try to minister to. Thank you for their example. We learn from it and we uh, give you glory and we look forward to the rest of this book. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll see you next time.